Good evening, everybody. Tonight, I'd like to talk about equanimity, which Winnie shared a little bit about two nights ago, and really its place in our practice and along the whole of the path. And I'd like to begin by just inviting you to imagine as though you were sitting under the Bodhi tree with the Bodhisattva, with the about-to-be Buddha, with Siddhartha Gautama. And if you could incline your mind in the direction of that mind, if you could connect with that mind for a moment, because we really are connected with that mind. Sorry, I'm just adjusting this because I hear kind of a funny sound. see if that's better. So if you could connect with that mind, is that better? Yes, okay, thanks. You would find the seven factors of awakening uh, balanced and alive and well. And if you look at your own mind today and as you continue with the practice, you will see these factors at work in your own practice as well. We know that when the, when the Buddha sat down that evening of his, of his enlightenment with the vow to sit there until he was fully enlightened, we know he was supported by incredibly strong, consistent, continual mindfulness. He was interested in what was happening. There was a keen sense of investigation. And there was a lot of energy, obviously, and great effort in a relaxed way that he was bringing to the practice. There was uh, a refreshing kind of joy in the mind, nourishment of calm. The mind was deeply connected, collected, deeply undistracted, and really steeped in in a great deal of wisdom and equanimity. And we know that the presence of these qualities really creates a, f- a fertile ground. It's, it's the soil from which liberating wisdom arises. And this is happening for us here. Enlightenments, insights. We're hearing over and over again the new understandings, the openings, the freedoms that are happening as you're continuing in your practice. And as these qualities, as these factors of awakening are present, for the Buddha, I imagine that it was a very open-hearted, receptive kind of presence with a lot of clear comprehension. He knew what he was doing. He knew why he was doing it. And there's a sense of his presence as being immovable. That he sat really as a mountain of determination, of dignity, of balance, of poise, of even-mindedness. This is why when Mara came and said and challenged the Buddha, you know, who do you think you are to say that you can sit here and get free? That's why he didn't get into an argument with Mara. He didn't try and have a big, long conversation and tell Mara why he was right. 
He just said, I see you, Mara. That clear, non-reactive. And so equanimity is, is the final factor uh, the, of, these, of these factors of awakening to come into maturity on, our, on the path. And um, it's the last of many of the lists. It's the last of the paramis, the last of the Brahma Viharas. And it's no surprise that it's the last of these lists because it's really a, a mature quality. We don't usually start with equanimity. We may have the intention to be equanimous, but equanimity is something that arises as the result of our practice. So when I imagine the Buddha sitting there that evening and the kind of devotion, the kind of commitment, the kind of presence that he had, I, I really do picture it as a, having a quality of a mountain. And I often associate mountains as having a presence of equanimity. When I look at a mountain, it reminds me of the feel of the equanimous mind. When we consider mountains, and just let yourself picture as I'm speaking, you know, maybe a great tall mountain with snow at the top, the kind of mountain that that, um, people may spend days climbing to get to the top. Mountains are stable, they are unmoving, but they're not at all disconnected. You know, mountains are home to all kinds of life, from animals where I live, hikers and cyclists and skiers, wildflowers, uh, so many kinds of creatures who live in the air and live on the earth. And mountains really exist because of the myriad of changing conditions that make them up. You know, they, uh, they stand amidst great snowstorms, rainstorms, uh, hot sunshine, and, and they change a little bit over time. The mountains are affected by their environment. They're affected by what is going on. And in a very real way, mountains stand. They, they are with all of life, and they sustain and support so many life, different life forms that are intimately connected with them. And mountains in their own nature don't cling. And they don't get aversive to the rainstorms. They don't get attached. And I often wonder if this kind of quality that, that at least I experience, and maybe some of you experience when we are in the high mountains, is maybe part of why, why they're sacred to so many people. Mountains have such a place in the different ceremonies and rituals of of various cultures. And I know when I'm on top of a mountain, it often gives me uh, a much broader perspective about what's going on in my life. You know, my problems and my issues and my emotions and all these things I can try and figure out actually every time after I travel. I've been traveling so much this year. I go home and I... I, uh, put on my tennis shoes and I hike up a mountain right in town where I live, Animus Mountain. And there's something about just being on top of a mountain and being able to see the valley, being able to see all the homes and um, the landscape that gives a certain kind of perspective for me uh, with regard to what's going on in my life. In the Terragata, 
which is a collection of um, early, early, early Buddhist poems by women elders, uh, songs of wise women of early Buddhism. And this is one of the poems. If your mind becomes firm like a rock and no longer shakes in a world where everything is shaking, your mind will be your greatest friend and suffering will not come your way. So having a mind that is our friend is something that I think everybody in this room wants. And a mind that does not shake is a mind that is equanimous. Sometimes when practice is difficult and you know, there's just these big waves of hindrances and strong emotions and you don't know if you should uh, investigate or practice the Brahma Viharas or notice awareness, sometimes in the middle of all of that you can just think mountain. <laughs> just to be in a mountain of presence in your practice, it can kind of give us the sort of stability and ground that we need to keep going and not have the waves uh, sweep us away so much. The, the Pali word, many of you probably know the Pali word for equanimity is upeka, which is translated as to look over. It's also sometimes described as seeing with patience or seeing with understanding. There's another uh, word that's translated as equanimity, which is tatramajatata, which Carol mentioned in her talk a while ago. I like that word. It's, it's kind of a fun word to say, actually, tatramajatata. <laughs> um, and it's made up of three parts. Tatra means there, and maja means middle. And tata means to stand or to pose. So the word put together means to stand in the middle of all of this which is the sense of equanimity, standing in the middle of all of this. In the suttas, often when equanimity is, is uh, brought forth or, or talked about, the words are used, and equanimity takes its stance. I like that, and equanimity takes its stance. So this kind of even-mindedness of presence is not passive. It's actually active. It takes its stance right in the middle of life. One place where I teach often is a retreat center in northern New Mexico. And it's uh, an, in the middle, really, of an old-growth ponderosa pine forest. So there are very, very old trees on this land. And there's, there's one tree that is said to be about 800 years old. It's enormous. I, I can't even stretch my hands around a portion of the tree. Some of you may have been there and had the good fortune to spend a little time with this tree that we, we call the Buddha tree. And it's a tree that yogis go to, and um, we often take yogis there. And, you know, we can say just in a quick way, oh yeah, this tree's about 800 years old. But when we pause to think about that, an 800-year-old tree has been around for a really long time. It means that tree was standing before the first European settlers, before their ships ever made it to this continent to this part of the world. Now, that tree has been standing through two world wars, seen so much more. And you can, you can tell the tree, she looks like she really has a story. And 
I often, I often think of this tree um, when there's a lot going on and when I need to have a sense of ground, of connectedness, of, of feeling rooted. So there's a way that this tree has stood in the middle of so much life for hundreds and hundreds of years. So we need, we need the presence of equanimity in our lives because the worldly winds are not, they're not abstractions. They're real. They're at work in our lives. In, in, every, in every sitting, probably, you may have experiences of pleasure and of pain. You know the, um, the joy of praise, the pain of how it is to feel blamed. We all know the, um, the feelings that can come with gain and the, and the difficult feelings that may come with loss and fame and disrepute. And so we can hear about these vicissitudes as a teaching and when we, when we really turn to see these conditions at work in our own lives, they feel they feel so personal. You know, pain in the body feels personal. The experience of uh, loss being lived, there, there, there's a story, there are conditions, there's a way that we know that in our own world. And the worldly winds are a huge part of what makes up our emotional experience, which is something that we must turn to in a full way and get comfortable with if we want to really be free. And it's human nature to prefer the first of the worldly winds. It's human nature to like praise and pleasant. And also to want to keep away the unpleasant one. Often we think there's a lot of dukkha, you know, in, in the unpleasant vicissitudes in in things like loss or or blame or disrepute and we miss the dukkha that is in the process of holding on to the first of those pairs that's in the process of trying to keep conditions be um, pleasant be in a way that uh that uh feels good to us dolly parton had some good deep dharma wisdom when she says if you want the rainbow you've got to put up with the rain So the wisdom of equanimity is that it gives us another way to be in the world. It gives us a way to live with more freedom in these currents of our lives, these currents of how it is to be in our human experience that includes the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. I think that this, that this predicament that we may feel or this this longing to find a way to come to terms, to have some measure of peace in our lives in this way is really what brings so many of us to practice in the very beginning. It was certainly some of what brought me to Dharma practice early on. A sense of knowing that it's possible to live with more peace, but not really knowing the how-to. So equanimity really has a lot to do with happiness. This is why Winnie, Winnie spoke about it. And happiness has all kinds of different flavors. Sometimes happiness is uplifting and effervescent. And sometimes happiness is a kind of quiet contentment. 
peace is a flavor of happiness. And equanimity really is the quality of, of peacefulness. I think of it as being a, a kind of happiness that has a cooler flavor to it. Happiness and a coolness. In my own life, I've been uh, having plenty of opportunities, as always, to work with the worldly winds, to see my own uh, reactivity at work. Some time before coming out here to IMS, I learned that a, a person in my family had a really difficult diagnosis. We, um, we uh, thought that she was clear of her cancer and it actually came back in its most advanced stage. And so it was really kind of surprising news to all of my family. And initially when I got the news, equanimity actually did take its stance. There was a feeling of, okay, this is some fear of loss, some sadness for me, and just a real feeling of it being held in the larger container of the practice. And as time has gone on, I've noticed in myself this deep desire to be able to control what's beyond my control, not just in the progression of the illness, but in the way that decisions are being made, in the way that decisions aren't being made, you know, in the way that with family we, we want it to go our way, like most of life. And as I've seen the, um, the tension of these patterns and the, the real suffering that gets added to the picture with my own clinging, my own aversion at work, what has become clear is that... Uh, it gets in the way of the love for me. It gets in the way of my heart, really. And as in seeing that and really getting to know the dukkha of that reactivity, what has become very clear is that, is that really the only thing that makes sense is to step back and let go and actually feel how it is to sit, to stand in the middle of all of this because all the other strategies uh, really, for me, make me feel once, once removed. And there's a greater tension in the reactivity than actually in just meeting life on life's terms in this way. And often it is when big waves come our way, you know, things we really didn't expect that equanimity takes its stance because we see sometimes, we all know how this is, when, a, when the end of a relationship happens and it's unexpected, or when you're going along fine in the retreat and all of a sudden, one afternoon, the hindrances are just in their full glory, going crazy, they won't settle down. Often it's when these big waves come our way that, um, that equanimity shows itself. It's often actually, we, we see so directly that holding on and trying to fight with reality is futile because really reality, reality always wins. So to know equanimity, we need to study our own reactivity and study the, the dukkha that is a part of our own patterns of reactivity. For me, the process of letting go and being willing to sit in the middle of this stuff in my family it's not at all from a place of resignation or powerlessness. 
it's really a place of, of greater power because it's a place of greater truth. And this is what allows for full engagement with our lives. One of the reasons I, I really enjoy speaking about equanimity so much is that when I look upon my years in this practice, um, almost 20 years now, that's hard to believe, but when I, when I consider really what's different in my experience of life because of this practice, what I notice most strongly is that when reactivity arises, there is a sense of resting in a larger and a larger sense of being. When reactivity arises, there is a feeling of widening into it. There's a feeling of spaciousness, really, that can hold um, the reactivity. And for me, this spaciousness is really the felt sense of, of equanimity. It's the way I experience equanimity. We often use the example of, you know, if you put a tablespoon of salt in a glass of water and drink the water, you know, your nose is going to crinkle. You'll want to spit it out. It tastes really salty. But if you put a tablespoon of salt in Gaston Pond or in a huge body of water and went to taste that water, you wouldn't even taste the salt because it's held in a larger container. It's a little bit like this with the experience of reactivity and equanimity. So there's really two parts to grow our equanimity because we don't you know, become equanimous by trying to be. We become equanimous because there's wisdom that unfolds as we relate to our experience. And to, to really come into our lives fully, we, we need to be able to contact, to really touch directly what's happening, and to have the spaciousness that allows us to do that in a real way. So contact, really, vichara, you've been doing a lot of that here, being with your experience, investigating, handling, studying, knowing, turning toward. And often in the um, process of I don't know, becoming more aware of equanimity and wanting more equanimity in our lives, there can be an idea that somehow equanimity looks like there's, there's not much emotion at all or life is kind of flat or that we should just let go and get over it. This is a, these are some words from a, from a woman named Devia. I wish I knew more about her. Uh, that I've come across these words and they, they certainly ring true for me. It's a little like the quote that Carol shared in her talk last night. And this is her advice for, for students who are feeling like they're having trouble letting go. And she says, it's normal. Everybody wants to let go. But how do you let go if you don't hold things, don't touch things, in full consciousness, in full awareness, with a totally open heart. The first experience is of touch, a profound contact with things in the, excuse me, a profound contact 
between things with the universe without mental commotion. Everything begins there. Touching, opening, accepting the universe deeply. If you let go before touching deeply, you can bring on mental turmoil. And she says many beginning yogis make this mistake. They let go before taking hold and their heart is never open. They enter into a sterile void and remain in prison. When you touch deeply, when you open to your experience fully, when you accept what's here with the totality of your being, you no longer need to let go. That happens. It occurs naturally. So maybe you've seen this in your own practice. The letting go is, is the process of wisdom. So contact means waking up to what is here, contact the way I'm using the word, and including, including it. It means being willing to admit that we're bothered in places where we maybe wish we weren't bothered. And spaciousness, the, the capacity to be spacious is so much of what allows this kind of um, balance in the mind to grow. For me, I, I, in my practice, kind of the, the gateway to more spaciousness was really looking at the attitude with which I was practicing. And I know that you've been given a lot of instruction in this so far. But you know, when we're coming to the practice, trying to make something happen, trying to keep something from happening, it keeps the mind tight. It keeps the mind at a certain level of agitation. And when the awareness and the mindfulness is clear, where there's, there's a real level of interest, um, there's a deeper experience of awareness, really, and of the nature of awareness. And as we've said over and over again, Awareness has its own kind of spaciousness. Awareness on its own doesn't overtake our being. It doesn't react, it doesn't judge, it doesn't care. So as we become familiar with a continuity of more and more moments of mindful awareness, we we may touch a feeling of just residing in an enlarged sense of, of, of being. As I said, this really can be an experience of sitting and consciously widening. So if you're sitting and dealing with restlessness or anger, giving that arising a pond, a world through which it arises versus trying to put it into a tight kind of glass or container. When the Buddha gave instructions to his son, um, in one set of instructions he encouraged his son to develop a mind like different, different elements, one of them being the element of space. And his instructions to Rahula were develop a mind like space where experiences both pleasant and unpleasant can appear and disappear without conflict, struggle, or harm. Rest in a mind like vast sky. So abiding in this kind of spacious awareness allows for less reactivity because there's really the space to hold whatever's arising. A a knot can't untangle without space. 
in the past year, I've been sort of in love with this documentary called The Path of the Horse. I've shared it with some of you. It's really a wonderful Dharma teaching. It's a story of a woman who used to be a horse trainer and a riding instructor. And she did it for a really long time. And and she came to a point where she felt like she could teach her students how to control their horses. But she felt that something really essential for her had been lost. She felt like she was no longer sharing the connection that she once once had with these gracious beings. And she did maybe her version of a long retreat. She sold her ranch and um, used the money to fund this search where she went all over the world, really, to study with different horse trainers. And it was all filmed. So she brought a camera person and set out to find a different way of doing things, a different way of relating to these horses. And the first place she goes is to Colorado to study with a man named Mark Ratchet. And he's this uh, horse trainer who is a big, tall, classic-looking cowboy who also has his black belt in Aikido. And he starts out by explaining horses that know softness and horses that know lightness. And he says this, he says that softness comes from the inside of the horse or the person. He says lightness is just on the outside. And he goes on to say you can achieve lightness with training and horses that are light can look really good and get a lot of work done. And with lightness, everything that has been trained is available as long as things are going well. He says that with horses that are light, if you bring them into a new situation, often everything will unravel. He says that with softness, everything is available all of the time. And he says that the softness is the feel that the horse has or that the person has. And he says, I'm using the word softness to describe a Japanese term that means a mind like still water. And he says that through training, we take all the softness out of the horse and we spend the rest of our lives putting it back in. He says it's still there. We just have to go look for it and find it and nurture it. And the practice can be a little like that for us, where we can spend a lot of years trying to whip ourselves into shape and work hard in the practice in a a way that um, actually works against us. So equanimity is the kind of softness he's talking about. Equanimity is available not just when things are going well, but when they're not going well. And it does require a kind of flexibility and fluidity. If you've ever seen pictures of a coastline after a great hurricane, you might notice that the palm trees are still standing, but the deciduous trees, the hardwood trees, are often cracked, you know, broken off entirely. And the palm trees are standing because they're flexible. They can move with the winds. She then goes to a a Danish island to study with a trainer called Klaus Hempling. And his instruction in working with horses to her says that, um, he says to her that you're trying so hard to make your horse be better and you're doing too much. And he says you're expecting rather than being. 
So he goes on to say that you have this picture of all these things that the horse is supposed to be doing, all these tricks and these, um, these ways that the horse is supposed to be. And so he says, no matter what the horse does, it's not your picture. And so it's always negative. And he encourages this woman to come to the horse just saying inside of herself, I am here to be with you. Being, not expecting anything. I'm here to be with you. And the, the last uh, trainer featured in this, in this documentary is a Russian man named Alexander Nezverov. And I was actually quite struck with his incredible resonance in his work with the horses. You could see how much these horses really loved being with him and loved training with him. And he works with horses using uh, no restrictions on their heads, no bit in their mouth, no punishment, no force at all. So he, he really cultivates this relationship with the horse where the horse is wanting to be uh, engaging with him. And there's a, there's a piece of this, of this documentary where he's in the ring with a horse and um, this horse looks like an Arabian. I don't know exactly what kind of horse this is. But the horse is down on, on his hind legs and his forelegs are kind of up and this... Alexander, this man, is, he's, he's quite short and he walks up to the horse and the horse wraps his foreleg around Alexander's back, starts licking him, starts nuzzling him. And Alexander, there's no, this trainer doesn't, doesn't have a whip. He doesn't have anything like that. And then the horse actually lays on all fours, lays all four um, legs are up. The horse is laying on his back. And um, Alexander climbs on top of this horse and uh, the horse just starts getting all frisky, you know, moving, moving his head and uh, just wraps one of the legs around him and then, the, uh, you know, it goes on to the next trainer. But it was just really amazing for me to see how his way of working with these horses brought forth a more, a more joyful spirit, a more kind of um, a playfulness with this, with this animal. And I'm sharing this because... These different, I, I know that horses are uh, prey animals, we're predators. I don't want to anthropomorphize the horses too much. But this way of training, this way of these trainers being with these animals is very much kind of the way that, the, the, the way of being that we can bring to our practice to allow this quality of being, this quality of spaciousness, this quality of of curiosity and of a kind of softness that's responsive, that's um, resilient, that's engaged. Another way of um, understanding the quality of equanimity, Ajahn Shah, I love how he puts it. This is from Ajahn Amaro's book, Small Boat, Great Mountain. And he writes that Ajahn Chah would ask his students, have you ever seen still water? And they would nod, yes, of course we've seen still water before. And then he'd ask, well, have you ever seen flowing water? And they'd respond, yes, we've seen flowing water. And then he says, so did you ever see still flowing water? And they said, no, that we'd never seen. He loved to get that bewilderment effect. 
Ajahn Chah would then explain that the mind's nature is still, yet it's flowing. It's flowing, yet it's still. He'd use the word citta for the knowing mind, the mind of awareness. The citta itself is totally still. It has no movement. It's not related to all that arises and ceases. It's silent and spacious. Mind objects, sights, sounds, smells, tastes, thoughts, touch, and emotions flow through it. Problems arise because of the clarity of mind gets entangled with sense impressions. By contemplating our own experience, we can make a clear distinction between the mind that knows, citta, and the sense impressions that flow through it. By refusing to get entangled with any sense impressions, we find refuge in that quality of stillness, silence, spaciousness. This policy of non-interference allows everything and is disturbed by nothing. So as equanimity grows, we become more familiar not just with the sense impressions, but with the stillness of mind that knows them. There's, um, there's two insights, classically, that support the development of equanimity, karma and anatta. I'm not going to say a whole lot about either of these because um, they've been talked about a fair bit. The, the equanimity that arises through the understanding of karma is really just understanding that each moment of our experience, as we know, is conditioned by all of the moments that preceded it. And when we see this clearly, it stops making sense to try and um, get busy changing the way things are. It makes more sense to do our best to show up um, in in a wholesome way to inform the next moments. So with equanimity, excuse me, with, um, with, with the understanding of karma, it's both knowing that each moment is dependently arisen and that, and that really what we do matters so very much because it's conditioning future moments. And in your practice here, often we don't realize just how wholesome the... Um, the practice that we're doing is just how deeply we are watering these seeds of goodness. You can't see it entirely because you're, you're in the middle of it. One time I had an experience seeing the, the wholesome results of, um, of my own actions that I didn't see at the time. I, I for many years, uh, would go to a juvenile detention facility near where I live, and I would always go on Monday nights with my good friend, Catherine Barr, and Monday nights are the nights that our, that our sangha meets. And so we would you know, meet with the sangha from 5.30 to 7 or so, and then at 7.30 we'd take off and go to this juvenile detention facility. And when I was doing that, I was working my tail off, putting myself through school. I had so much going on, and almost every Monday night as I would go to teach mindfulness to these kids, that's what we were doing, 
I really didn't want to go do it. I just wanted to go home. I was tired. I had work early the next morning. I thought I shouldn't keep doing this, but I did keep doing it because it was actually really rewarding. We saw really neat things happen, happen for these young people that we were working with. And some years later, I let it go, and I hadn't thought much about it. And then a couple of years ago, I was going into a gas station. I was filling my car with gas, and I was buying some M&Ms, and the man working behind the counter was kind of staring at me, and I was, he was like really staring at me. I was starting to get a little bit uncomfortable, and I thought, why is this man staring me down? And I walked up to the cash register, and he said, I remember you. You are the meditation lady. And I said, yeah. And, um, and I immediately recognized him as soon as he reminded me how, how we knew each other. And he said, I meditate every morning. And he said, it's the only thing that keeps me off the streets. And it just, it, it, it struck me so deeply knowing that going Monday night after Monday night after Monday night when it was cold and I wasn't sure I wanted to entirely, but, but when I really met well, that, um, that it made a difference in this young man's life. Right in that moment, I thought, um, it, it just really inspired me to keep going. We really never know the latter fruits of the wholesome actions that we, um, that we engage in and that, that we're all doing here together. In terms of not-self and not-da, equanimity, when we really see this and understand this, it, it challenges personality view. Personality view thrives on undoing and becoming. And equanimity draws sustenance from, from being. When we experience ourselves as part of a much larger, larger unfolding, we see that exactly what's happening now, like it's really, it's really like, Carol said last night that if it could be otherwise, it, it would be otherwise. Joanna Macy puts this so beautifully. She says, if we're not separate from the living world, then we should act our age. We're four and a half billion years old in terms of the origins of life. And 15 billion years old in terms of the Big Bang. Every atom and every molecule and every cell of our body goes back that 15 billion years. She says the life that's now beating in our hearts and breathing in our lungs didn't begin with our conception. Rather, life flows through us. For me, this is a wonderful doorway into equanimity. So I've been talking about equanimity in a, in, a, in a grosser sense. And we can also know equanimity in a much more refined way in our practice. When the seven factors are balanced and when concentration is strong and mindfulness is steady, there may arise a real disillusionment, really, a lack of interest in what's pleasant and unpleasant. The mind may be noticing objects in such an immediate way that it's really absorbed in that. 
and there's not room for aversion or attachment to arise. And this can be a place of great neutrality, of great uh, stillness, where the experience of pleasant and unpleasant is no longer compelling. And in this place of deep equanimity, reactivity really doesn't arise. A mature kind of equanimity, this kind of equanimity, may be one of the closest conditioned states we can know that has some degree, really, of the flavor of nibbana. So we want to pay attention to equanimity. It's certainly the foundation from which insight emerges. As a Brahma-vihara, most of you know equanimity is also a Brahma-vihara. And as a Brahma-vihara, equanimity allows the rest of the Brahma-viharas to really be be present in their fullness. We can't, uh, for example, really, really grow in our compassion. We can't really touch the suffering of another being without the spaciousness of equanimity or we merge with it we can too easily be drawn into it. So equanimity really gives compassion a kind of courage that makes it possible for us to directly touch the suffering. Equanimity in terms of metta allows a quality of patience that we can wish well, but we don't really know how things are going to go. We don't really know how long it may take. And equanimity allows joy, it allows mudita to really be as boundless as it is. I came across this story called An Evening in Los Angeles. A middle-aged African-American man scanned the restaurant looking for his friends. Tall, with an athletic build, he moved with an air of calm authority. Not finding his friends, the man decided to wait in the restaurant bar. And as he started to sit down at the bar, another man arriving at the same time turned and said, you're sitting in my seat. And after a slight pause, the new arrival continued, just like you people. The black man paused a moment and said in a voice somehow both courteous and compassionate, what's happening with you? The other, as if stopped in his tracks, responded, my wife just left me. The African-American who turned away wrath with compassion was Larry Ward, a meditation teacher in the tradition of Thich Nhat Hanh. Larry told this story at a retreat he was leading in North Carolina some years later. This, he said, is the fruit of practice. It's very much the kind of groundedness, non-reactivity, being able to act from wisdom that sees the larger picture and is connected with the heart. When we look at so many great beings who have been impactful in our world in a positive way, who have really made a difference long-term, people like Aung San Suu Kyi or the Dalai Lama or Nelson Mandela, they embody a kind of energy that is not frenetic, that's not frustrated. There's a, there's a sense of their, of 
of equanimity that, that allows them to have a reservoir of something that is not distraught. Aung San Suu Kyi, for me, is such an incredible embodiment of equanimity. She's strong, she's poised, she stays the course. And she doesn't lose heart. These beings don't lose heart when, um, when things take time, when freedom doesn't happen right away. So equanimity does lend a kind of deep spiritual strength that is not overcome by the immediate situation. So as you continue in your practice, I just encourage you to notice the equanimity that's here. Notice the equanimity that's here in a moment of awareness, in a moment of widening, in a moment of really making contact and touching your experience in a direct way. Equanimity allows our practice to move from struggling with what's here to really, really wishing to connect with what is and finding our refuge there. So it's really a a radical shift in our way of being and a shift in the direction of happiness and refuge. I'd like to close with a poem by Donald Babcock. This was in The New Yorker in 1947 called The Little Duck. Now we're ready to look at something pretty special. It's a duck riding the ocean a hundred feet beyond the surf. No, it isn't a gull. A gull always has a raucous touch about him. This is some sort of a duck, and he cuddles in the swells. He isn't cold and he's thinking things over. There's a great heaving in the Atlantic, and he is part of it. He looks little like a Mandarin or the Lord Buddha meditating under the Bodhi tree, but he has hardly enough above the eyes to be a philosopher. He has poise, however, which is what philosophers must have. He can rest while the Atlantic heaves because he rests in the Atlantic. Probably he doesn't know how large the ocean is, and neither do you. But he realizes it. And what does he do, I ask you? He sits down in it. He reposes in the immediate as if it were infinity, which it is. That is religion, and the duck has it. He's made himself a part of the boundless, by easing himself into it just where it touches him. I like the little duck. He doesn't know much, but he has religion. So we'll sit for a few moments. 